Good morning, good morning. Welcome back to another episode of the At Last Podcast, brought to you by the Advantage Podcast Network. Chris Bates here. I'm joined with my buddy Adam Katie. And we have, we're missing one. Uh, we, we typically have our third guest um, who's not with us for this recording, but we're still pressing on. Shout out to Dr. Kristen Ross. We miss you this episode, my man. Looking forward to having you right back. But Adam, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about our guest today and we'll get going. Yes, very excited to have Dr. Robert Lustig on the episode today. He's a trained pediatric neuroendocrinologist. And Dr. Lustig holds degrees from some institutions you may have heard of, MIT, Cornell. He has had tenure at UCSF and one of the preeminent speakers around the world, uh, around the concepts of metabolism, health, sugar, many aspects, obesity. One of the more important aspects, I think, that shows us his value and character is Dr. Lustig decided to retire from his medical practice to then get a law degree later in his career because he felt that he would be able to affect change at a greater level through policy. And I think that's really important to hear. So we could describe all the great accolades that he has, which are many. He's been published in hundreds of uh, peer-reviewed journals one of his YouTube episodes has 13 million views, I think, on the concept of sugar. So I, I don't want to just read his CV because I think we could be here for hours. <laughs> but Chris, help me welcome, welcome Dr. Lustig today. Yes, yes. Thank you, Dr. Lustig. Oh, thanks for having me. May I make one correction? I didn't retire to get a law degree. I got the law degree and then retired. Ah, <laughs> Important That's an important distinction. distinction. Yeah, yep, for sure. So, Dr. Lustig, we talked a little bit before we kind of kick things off, but for the sake of um, our conversation, just wanted to highlight really quickly and kind of bring you, uh, uh, give you a little more insight into the podcast, why we re why we started the podcast, and some things that have emerged from the podcast. So Adam and I, you know, we went to school together. We're, we're colleagues. And for those who are listening, right, you may already know this, but if this is your first time listening in, here's some more context for you. Back in 2020, we essentially had been talking due to all of the different unrest going on in the world, specifically in America, related to racism and all the justice stuff and all the killings and police stuff, all of these things that are impacting everybody, regardless of which side of the fence you fall on. And he and I started to talk more just as friends that we are, just checking in on each other, seeing how we're doing, how we're dealing with this stuff. What are our thoughts about this? Because we aren't typically ones that are in the arena with loud voices and strong, strong opinions about everything. So we started having some conversations, you know, just the two of us. And what really struck a chord with us is to start having these conversations in the context of our profession of saying like, hey, how do we as sports medicine providers enter into the conversation with our perspectives and with our experiences 
being who we are, right? Me, Bates, Chris Bates, being a black man in America, Adam being a white man in America, but also being in the same profession, all of these things, how do we bring this conversation to our profession to see what comes of it? And, you know, we started to talk about things. And essentially, one of the things that we realized is there is a disparity of people of color, specifically Black people in our profession of sports medicine, and and even more specific to that, athletic training. So then you start to take a closer look into like the inner cities of a variety of places in our in our country. And, you know, you start to see, well, man, look at all the people who are participating in sports, particularly in these areas. And there's not a, a representation of sports medicine providers in these areas who can help them, who can serve them. And, you know, we had talked about all of the studies and all the different things that show better health outcomes for folks who, who can identify with, with people in this area. So long story short, that then led us to, to start a nonprofit organization so we could actually start trying to affect change in these areas. So we say, hey, okay, it's one thing to say, hey, we need more athletic trainers of color or we need more athletic trainers who are black working in these different areas. What can we do about it? Right. Then it's another thing to actually do something about it. So that's why the nonprofit was started. So we could start the different initiatives, which we could talk more about later. That segues, I think, into our conversation this morning, Dr. Lustig, because then the question becomes, okay, with all of that said, which was a mouthful, what what does a pediatric and neuroendocrinologist have to say to us in, in the context of all of these things? Right. The sports drink issue is a big thing, right? We, my, you know, you go and these kids are eating, drinking all sorts of things. We're not going to, I mean, maybe we could even talk about the things that they eat, that we see them eating, but I think it, it really unravels some, some pretty, some pretty deep realities that, that we see going on here. And I think it would just be an honor for, for you coming from the perspective that you have doc, um, to, to maybe, help us t- kind of talk through some of these things and share some perspectives of what some of the disparities are from your, from your vantage point when it comes to this stuff. And then maybe that leads us further down a road of things that we can actually do to affect change. Well, that was a mouthful. And let me see if I can make some sort of semblance of something that works for you. This pandemic of racism did not occur in a vacuum. It occurred on top of a pandemic of a virus. So I'm going to ask you a question. Do you think that we would have had, as as a country, the same response to the killing of George Floyd if we didn't have a pandemic going on at the same time? Mm. Well, I would would say no, because George Floyd wasn't the first. No, and it, it didn't. No, I don't think so. I think a lot of people were very stressed, and I think a lot of people were feeling very inhibited in terms of their movements, which actually heightened the uh, anxiety over what happened that day even more. So I think that these two pandemics of both racism and the virus are intimately linked. They certainly are temporally, and I think they are causatively as well. Mm. So let's talk about what's happening with the pandemic, the the viral pandemic for a minute. Okay. And then maybe we can then, you know, move on to the, uh, 
to the race pandemic and, and how this fits in. So who dies from COVID? The elderly. And we understand that now because they have significant immune dysfunction. They've always died from, you know, viral uh, illnesses, uh, you know, like influenza. They always have a higher uh, mortality rate. But no one else did. But in this case, who else dies? People of color, the obese, and people with pre-existing conditions. Now, those three demographics, people of color, the obese, and pre-existing conditions, what do those three share in common? There could be multiple things. Well, give access me one. To, access to healthy, nutritious food could so, be across all three. How about ultra-processed food? That's there right. we go. Let's yep. just get to it. Yep. Ultra-processed food is the thing that ties those three demographics together. Man. So why does ultra-processed food make you die from COVID? And there are three reasons. The first reason is the virus is very smart. As you've seen, it has been, you know, a real thorn in our side. And now it even mutates, you know, to create, you know, new variants that are even worse. This is, you know, one hell of a virus. Now, this virus, it wants to attack every cell in your body. Most viruses do not do that. Most viruses, you know, will stick to your nose or maybe, you know, to your, you know, uh, your brain, you like meningitis. But, you know, this virus goes everywhere. And the reason it goes everywhere is because its portal for entry into the cell is on every cell. Mm. And this is a receptor. It is a protein. It is an endocrine factor okay, that I take care of as an endocrinologist. It is called ACE2, A-C-E-2, angiotensin-converting enzyme 2. And it is part of how cells stay hydrated. (laughs) Ding, 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 ding. (laughs) All right? So ACE2 is how water gets in and out of cells. And every cell needs to regulate its water. And so every cell has an ACE2. And the virus uses the ACE2 molecule as its injector point to deliver its RNA into the cell to take it over. Okay. Well, Mm -hmm. the more ACE2 molecules, the more chance you have to be infected and more rapidly because you have more opportunity. Each virus has more opportunity to inject its, uh, its payload, as it were. All right. Well, what makes ACE2 go up? Insulin. Insulin. Thank you, Adam. He will be answering all these questions. Gold star. <laughs> Gold star. All right. You get extra credit for that one. All right. That's, That's right. Insulin. Insulin makes ACE2 go up. Insulin causes sodium reabsorption and it causes increase in water content. It is one of the things that drives um, fluids around the body. And it's very high in people who eat ultra-processed food because they have this phenomenon called insulin resistance. So their insulin levels are very high because their liver is not working right. So that's number one. 
Number two, diabetes. Turns out the higher your blood glucose, the blood glucose for crystallizes around the edges of that ACE2 and holds it open, makes it even easier for the virus to be able to inject its uh, payload. Wow, wow, wow. So keeping your blood glucose down is essential. And it has been shown that diabetics have a much higher predictive uh, mortality than non-diabetics. And then finally, one more, short-chain fatty acids. Now, short-chain fatty acids are normally immunosuppressive. They suppress the cytokine response. We know now that it's not the virus that kills you, it's your own cytokine response to the virus that kills you, all right? So your immune system you know, generates inflammation. And the question is, why doesn't inflammation take over your entire body? It's because there's norm, there are regulators of inflammation so that you don't overdo it, okay? So you need inflammation or you'd be eaten by the maggots Okay, but if you have too much inflammation, basically you self-immolate. So you have to have some sort of check on that uh, inflammatory response. And one of those uh, factors that checks that inflammatory response is short-chain fatty acids. Well, where do you get short-chain fatty acids from? Breakdown of soluble fiber in the colon. Well, is there any soluble fiber in process, ultra-processed food? very little if none so people who eat ultra processed food will have an accentuated or an exaggerated cytokine response to this virus so three separate ways that ultra processed food via insulin via uh, high glucose via short chain fatty acids are going to put you at greater risk for dying of this virus morbidity and mortality of covid so what happened to our food over the course of this pandemic. I went to the supermarket, you know, the meat was still there, you know, the lettuce was still there, you know, the vegetables were still there. What was missing? The pasta, the candy, the ice cream, that's what was missing, all right? Things in a package. Things in a package and things that had sugar in them. That's what happens when you're stressed. So. Does this ultimately impact on your question of race? And the answer is absolutely. Because when black people see that black people are dying and that they're dying in greater numbers, the question is why? And the immediate answer was, well, because blacks get worse health care, which of course is true. Turns out that everyone's in trouble now. And food isn't even being discussed. I mean, the, the uh, NIH, the FDA, you know, they basically gave us the three legs of the stool. They said hand washing, masking, and social distancing. Okay, no one said anything about the food. And we've shown that you can actually improve your insulin sensitivity and improve your cytokine response in nine days just by getting sugar out of your diet. We actually published a medical, my, my nonprofit, Eat Real, you can find online, eatreal.org, published a medical alert last year, basically calling the uh, CDC and the FDA out for I- ignoring this. This is the fourth leg of the stool. And you know, the fact is, you know, no one touched this with a 10-foot pole because it w- would have been, quote, unpopular. 
Yeah. Well, you know what's more unpopular? Dying is more unpopular. Sheesh. <laughs> Certainly more uh, less de- the least desired outcome. But it, it 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 it's funny because it should be the most unpopular thing, but it actually. You know, I would I would I would argue that it actually is the more popular thing, right? It's more popular for people to die than to have discussions about hairy things like food. At last is proud to announce that we have teamed up with Raincross High Performance and Thorn to support athletes from underserved communities. If you purchase supplements through the Raincross High Performance Dispensary via Thorn, you can receive a 35% discount on products purchased. Not only does Raincross offer the highest discount possible to their performers, but 100% of the profits from their dispensary will go to initiatives supporting athletes from underserved communities via At Last. If you are looking for high quality products from Omega 3s to Vitamin D, go to www.thorn.com forward slash U forward slash Raincross HP to receive 35% and support our cause. It, it and you're you're right, Doc. Like it's not just you know the, the so the food is an issue. The pandemic heightens this, but I guess as I'm hearing you talk, it's almost like man, the pandemic helped shine a light on issues that have been going on in a lot of places. Absolutely, particularly these places you know where all the time the the ice cream and the the you know all the foods with the sugars in it are the ones that are missing on the shelves and right? of course they're the ones that are marketed to African Americans at even a higher level and all the yes exactly and so you think about um, and then this idea of like I, I hate to use cliche terms because it could trigger some other things but for the lack for the sake of time and for the lack of me having a broader you know vocabulary to to describe this you know when you talk about food deserts you know so in some of these places the access to these real foods are, are sparse and limited, you know? And so my point is there are so many barriers or so many challenges that have to be overcome before we can get to the point of people being able to actually eat these things. And I do think education is a education and awareness is, is one huge component of that. Right. And that's the low hanging fruit. I'm going to interrupt you there. No problem. I'm going to argue that education has not ever in the history of mankind ever solved any substance of abuse. Get it. Let's go. Go for it. Did Nancy Reagan's just say no work? With an opioid crisis. Keep going. Oh, man. All right. Well, fact of the matter is sugar is addictive. Okay. Anything that stimulates the reward center, anything that stimulates this area in the brain called the nucleus accumbens is in the extreme addictive. So we have chemical addictions, cocaine, heroin, nicotine, alcohol, sugar, and we have behavioral addictions, shopping, gambling, social media, internet, gaming, pornography. Pornography, right. Yep. Okay. So it doesn't have to be a chemical. It can be a behavior. If it releases dopamine in the nucleus accumbens, if it is, quote, pleasurable, if it is rewarding, In the extreme, it is also addictive. Now, cocaine is pretty addicting. Heroin is very addicting. Alcohol is sort of addicting. Only 20% of the U.S. are hardcore alcoholics. Okay, 40% are social drinkers, 40% are teetotalers. 
20%. Sugar is probably about the same. We have a lot of people who use it casually and use it socially, and it's not a big deal. Okay, But 20% are hardcore sugar addicts. And you know who they are because they tell you, oh, I have a horrible sweet tooth. Yeah. That's sugar addiction. Right? It's just socially acceptable. Right. Right. So bottom line, they're putting the sugar in the food on purpose because they know when they add it, you buy more mm. because you're addicted. And guess who addicted you? Well, you know, it's just like the, it's just like the pusher on this the playground. Yeah, that's right. With the first take a little bit, Take a little hit. Yep. Nothing, nothing different here. Except your grandmother's the pusher now. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, we can go in so many different directions from that. But, sure. you know, but the, the fact of the matter is that there's a fair amount of denialism in this. You know, when you tell people that sugar is addictive, they don't believe you. And, you know, then you show it to them. Or they brush because, it off. Yeah. Well, all you have to do is ask somebody to go off sugar for, you know, a week. And by five days, they're pulling the hair out of their head. Mm. I, I, I always refer people to a specific article, uh, an editorial that was written in the uh, uh, Long Island newspaper Newsday from August 15th, 2014. It was written about me. So I, I remember <laughs> very well. It was written by a Republican operative by the name of William F. B. O'Reilly. Not that Bill O'Reilly, different guy. Okay, but uh, um, he, he's a Long Island, um, you know, politico. And the title of the uh, editorial was Off Sugar and Wanting to Tear My Eyes Out. Mm. And what he did was he basically went through his history of addiction. And, you know, he started with smoking and then smoking became unfashionable. And then he started drinking and then he ended up with a drinking problem that got him into trouble. And so he ultimately gravitated to sugar and then he ended up, you know, obese with heart disease. And so he tried to get off sugar and he couldn't. Mm. And he cursed me and he says, and the last line of the uh, article is, and I hate Dr. Robert Lustig. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, that's what this is, this addiction transfer. And we see it all around us. I mean, as an example, you know, people who uh, have bariatric surgery for obesity, so they can't eat now, they start drinking instead. Okay. And people who were drinkers, you know, when they go off uh, uh, alcohol, you know, start eating. And so this is a, uh, you know, well-known thing. Go to, go to any Alcoholics Anonymous um, uh, uh, meeting. And at the end, you know, you go in the back room and, you know, they're having their social hour. And what's there? You know, the donuts and the rock stars and, you know, the, you know, the monster drinks and what have you. So this is addiction transfer. Because once your nucleus accumbens, once that reward center is addicted, it's addicted to everything. Because there's only one dopamine system. And when you downregulate those dopamine receptors, you feel it in all, in, you know, for everything. So, you know, food industry knows this. So what do they do? They should be backing off. Instead, they add more. Now, having said that, 
The food industry actually does know what they're doing. And they do know that this is a problem. And they are under pressure to do something about it. They haven't figured out what to do yet, but they're under pressure to do something about it. Two companies have actually examined their entire portfolio and reduced their amount of sugar in their uh, entire portfolio by 14%. Mm. And those two companies are Dannon and Unilever. Mm. Now, my question to you is, a 14% reduction, <laughs> is that good or bad? It's probably not enough. Not even close. Now, I, I applaud them for the exercise, but really, 14%, that's all you could do? Really? I would posit maybe that that is a show in, we're making a step in the right direction because that may bring media and more sales for that company, but they probably understand it's not actually creating a healthier product. Well, I hate to tell you, but the president of Dannon, Emmanuel Faber, was fired because of it. Oh, well, (laughs) the cat's out the bag. (laughs) So I don't know about that. You know, Ingenui, the CEO of PepsiCo, back in 2006, you know, she's from Catholic University of Madras, India, and she became the CEO of the largest food conglomerate on the planet. And she said, I have to do something for my population because, you know, India has a 12% diabetes rate. Okay. A 12%. We are the fattest nation on earth and we only have a 9.4% diabetes rate. They have a 12% diabetes rate and they're not even fat. But she knew, she knew it was her food that was causing it. And so she said, I'm going to do something about it. And so she, what she did was she introduced the good for you line. So they always had the fun for you line, the Pepsi and the Doritos. And they also had the better for you line, like Slim Jims and things like that. Okay. But now they introduced the good for you line, like the hummus and the pretzels and the chia seeds and stuff like that. Okay. And in 2011, she lost $349 million and Wall Street was calling for her head on a spear. Wow. Because she, quote, took her eye off the ball. So here is a person who gets it, who is the CEO of the largest food conglomerate in the world, and she can't do it either. And she was lucky she survived. But you never heard from the good for you line ever again after that. Okay, and she retired in 2018. So individuals within the food industry have made attempts. Denise Morrison from Campbell's Soup, she tried to get the sodium out of soup. She got fired. You know, the bottom line is, this is a juggernaut. You know, this is a Frankenstein. And, you know, the people, you know, in in charge aren't in charge. Mm. So this is a problem that is bigger than the companies and really needs government to sort of help rein it in. Problem is 338 out of 535 congressmen are taking money from the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is paid by big food. I was in effect. These are these are exact reasons, Dr. Lusted, that I feel that as practitioners treating athletes, we are a bit culpable in contributing to chronic diseases like diabetes, heart disease, cancer, dementia, autoimmune disease, like the list goes on and on and on that can be linked to sugar. 
Absolutely. I think we offer, and I say we as a whole, because I this wouldn't be my personal practice, but I think we, we provide athletes with sports drinks that have very, very high content of sugar and sometimes higher content of fructose, which we can we would love for you to explain the the harms of fructose because it's not an equal one-to-one of fructose to glucose in terms of harm. Right. Happy to do that. So we'll talk about the two issues that, you know, you want to address and we're going to do them in order so that we don't uh, get. Let, Let me add one more piece of why I think we're contributing to chronic disease, even though it may be indirect or even without our knowledge in that I think, if an athlete on a sideline is drinking a Gatorade, which they don't need, there are very young youth athletes that are seeing that and their connection may be, well, I need that Gatorade for performance because I have Adam working at the collegiate level or the professional level providing that athlete with a Gatorade. And so I think there's a lot of harm in that. And that's why just to bridge our conversation again today, I think that's why it's really important that we discuss these aspects. Indeed. I couldn't agree more. So we've talked about sugar being addictive, which it is. Okay. But the question that I've raised back in 2007, and then with that YouTube video, you mentioned sugar, the bitter truth, which is actually almost 14 million views now is sugar toxic. And it turns out that that molecule fructose, remember that the sugar, dietary sugar, sucrose, high fructose corn syrup, doesn't matter which is two molecules, not one. One is called glucose, one is called fructose. Now, glucose, for lack of a better word, is the energy of life. Every cell on the planet burns glucose for energy. Glucose is so important that if you don't consume it, your body makes it. The Inuit, you know, they didn't have any carbohydrate in their diet. They had, you know, whale blubber. They had ice, you know, no place to grow a wheat stalk or even rice or anything, okay? They, they had fish, right? They still had a serum glucose level. And the reason is because glucose is so important that your liver will take the amino acids and the glycerol from fatty acids and turn it into glucose to keep you with a stable blood glucose. So glucose, for lack of a better word, is good. Fructose, on the other hand, which is the sweet molecule in sugar. Glucose is not that sweet. Glucose has a sweetness index of 74 compared to sucrose, which is 100. And fructose has a sweetness index of 173. So really the sweetness is in the fructose molecule. Okay. And that's the reason why they put a lot of high fructose corn syrup in stuff because it's got such a high fructose content. All right. Anyway, fructose is not glucose. Glucose is a six-membered ring. Fructose is a five-membered ring. Turns out fructose is metabolized completely differently from that of glucose. Can I interrupt real quick, Doc? And when we're talking about fructose for the the non-gold star students in the room, um, (laughs) fructose is the sugar that we find in fruits, right? Well, it, you find glucose in fruits too. Fruits I mean, also, okay. basically, you find sucrose in fruits. Okay. Fruits have sucrose. Okay. Fruits have sucrose, and sucrose is two molecules joined together one glucose, one fructose. There's an enzyme in your intestine, cleaves the bond between the two. Now you've got 
the glucose separate and the fructose separate. You absorb both, but then they go to different places and get metabolized differently. Got it. Where okay. can fructose be metabolized, Dr. Lewis? The fructose is only metabolized in the liver. It is not insulin regulated. And fructose, when supplied in excess, faster than your mitochondria can burn it, will get turned into liver fat. Got it. There we go. All right. Okay. And it is that liver fat that drives the hyperinsulinemia, the chronic disease, all of the downstream problems. So a little fructose your liver can handle. A lot of fructose your liver can't handle. So this is a dose-dependent phenomenon. Got it. All right? And so when you overload your liver with fructose, which is what happens with a Coca-Cola or a sports drink for that matter, you are supplying more substrate than the mitochondria of that organ can handle. And the excess doesn't just sit around. It gets converted to fat. And then that fat can either be exported out of the liver, which raises your serum triglyceride and puts you at risk for heart disease or obesity, or it will precipitate in the liver, not make it out. Now you've got a lipid droplet. Now you've got fatty liver disease, which is the primary risk factor for diabetes and other insulin resistance diseases such as Alzheimer's, which is also not good, which is also <laughs> okay. So, okay. I'm following is, now. <laughs> it is that fructose conversion to fat through this process called de novo lipogenesis, DNL, three enzymes that turn sugar, turn that fructose molecule into fat that drives all of this. And the reason that this happens is that fructose poisons the mitochondria. Fructose is three, count them, three mitochondrial toxins in one. One molecule makes the mitochondria work less well three different ways. And, you know, sports is all about mitochondria. Sports yeah. is all about making those mitochondria work at peak efficiency. Quick. Yeah. So why in the world would you add a mitochondrial toxin to make you actually work less well? Okay. It makes no sense. People, you know, the food industry says fructose is energy. It's energy if you blow it up in a bomb calorimeter. But in human terms, the way you capture energy is through this molecule called ATP, adenosine triphosphate. If you don't make ATP, you don't have energy. Right? It doesn't matter what happens in a bomb calorimeter. It matters what happens in your cell. So the more ATP you generate, the more energy you have. Right. But fructose, because it poisons three separate enzymes in the mitochondria, make your mitochondria work less well. Therefore, it is not energy. It is an inhibitor of energy. And here are the three enzymes that it uh, inhibits. AMP kinase which causes mitochondrial biogenesis and basically is the fuel gauge on the liver cell. ACAD-L, acyl-CoA dehydrogenase long chain, which is the enzyme that starts breaking the fatty acids up to become uh, ketones, you know, which burn better. And finally, the last one is CPT-1, carnitine palmitoyl transferase 1. This is the shuttle, carnitine is the shuttle that 
takes fatty acids from the outside and brings them into the mitochondria so they can be burned. And CPT1 regenerates the carnitine so it can be used again. So three separate enzymes that are involved in mitochondrial burning in order to make ATP that fructose inhibits. So the concept that fructose is energy is ridiculous. Yeah. It's a friggin' joke. Context is so key. But but the food industry doesn't want you to know that because then they wouldn't be able to sell their sports drinks. Right. So that's myth number one. That is myth number one. And I hope I've debunked that myth for you in you know enough detail so that you're uh, audience can you know understand what how they're being used. Yeah. Springbok Analytics is proud to support Atlas and their mission to improve equity across sports medicine. Springbok's all-powered technology transforms MRI images into 3D digital twins of your patient, giving you precise, objective data to inform your rehab and training programs. Go to springboktech.com to get your analysis today and mention at last for a 20% discount. Okay, so that's that's myth number one. So now let's move to the other myth, the hydration myth. Now, it absolutely is true that athletes need hydration. The question is, do they need a sports drink to achieve it? That's the question. And what the food industry says, the beverage industry says, is, well, it's got the sodium uh, to replace what's being lost through the sweat, and the sugar helps get the sodium in. What the really what the sugar is doing is it's hiding the taste of the sodium, is what it's doing. All right. Either of you old enough to remember the original Gatorade? It was nasty. Yeah. It was nasty. Okay. That's all I remember. It yeah. tasted like tiger piss. The red stuff. Yeah. <laughs> all right. No, it was actually it was kind of a yellow orange. It's okay, Stokely, Stokely's Gatorade before Pepsi bought it in uh, to, in 1992. Okay, okay, so right. maybe not. So, 1965, Dr. Robert Cade of the University of Florida invents this concoction that increases uh, water transport across the intestinal barrier and sodium too. Okay, and so basically, it's glucose, sodium, and water is in this original concoction formula, all right? And he called it Gatorade, okay? And what it is, is it's an oral rehydration solution, the same thing we give to cholera victims in India. So that they, you know, if, they can't, if they can't have IV fluids, we give them you know, this, and it will get enough water across the intestine so that they can stay hydrated so they don't go into shock from the cholera, okay? Well, it works. And I'm not arguing that it works. It works. And indeed, the Florida Gators won the Sugar Bowl in uh, New Orleans <laughs> in, in 1972. Wow. Okay. You know, the on Sugar Gatorade. Bowl of all names. Uh, not the, well, the Sugar Bowl, yeah. On Gatorade. And so Gatorade made a big splash. Okay. But it tasted awful. And the reason it tasted awful is because it had a lot of sodium in it. Okay. And the glucose didn't hide the sodium. It was necessary because the glucose is involved in facilitated transport of sodium in the gut. So you have to have the glucose there. Right. But 
It didn't taste good. But it was effective. It was effective, but it didn't right. taste good. Right. Okay. In 1992, Pepsi buys Gatorade, says, how are we going to market this swill? And they did two things. High fructose corn syrup and Michael Jordan. And 34 grams of sugar. And 34 grams of sugar. So the bottom line is, okay, you don't need that fructose. The glucose worked fine. Right. Okay. The fructose is there only to hide the salt and to get it, to make it addictive. Mm. All right. So that's number one. Number two, the food industry will tell you that, well, fructose will replete your glycogen faster. And that actually is true. So if you are glycogen depleted, a fructose-containing beverage will replete the glycogen faster than a glucose-containing beverage alone. And the reason is because there are two pathways to glycogen storage. One is glucose going directly to glycogen. And the other is a backdoor pathway in the liver where you can basically take fructose 6-phosphate, goes to one fructose 1,6-biphosphate, which then goes to glucose 6-phosphate and goes to glycogen. So you can basically you know, stuff your liver filled with glycogen faster with fructose because you can take advantage of two pathways, the, the direct pathway and the backdoor pathway. So that is actually true. And so if you are truly glycogen depleted, you will replete your glycogen faster with a fructose-containing beverage. Mm. So my question to you is, who needs to have their glycogen repleted that fast? Very few athletes. Nobody. Not my 12-year-old. <laughs> sure. Right, exactly. So maybe, maybe if you're a you know, an elite football player on the gridiron for, you know, four hours and, you know, and you have, and you have a, a practice in the morning and you have a practice in the evening and sure, you have sure. the glycogen in between, you know, maybe you can make a case that they might need it. Right. But certainly not any kid at any uh, high school level, right. you know, or anything else. And certainly not any, youth uh, kid. any youth need this at all. All right. So, you know, this notion that, you know, fructose repletes glycogen. Yes, it's true. It does. Okay. Point is, it's irrelevant. It's true, true, and irrelevant to the problem. Okay. It only makes the problem worse. All right. Now let's talk more about hydration. So the food industry says, well, you need the sugar for hydration. Well, you need sodium for hydration. I'm not going to argue that. But do you need sugar for hydration? Well, you need glucose for hydration, as we talked about, because that's what gets it across the blush border. So do you need fructose for hydration? And the answer is no, you don't. Okay, you don't need the fructose for hydration, period. Turns out that hydration does help metabolic syndrome. And the way it helps uh, metabolic syndrome is by turning off the V1 receptor at the level of the liver, which is connected to the enzyme ketohexakinase, which is creating that metabolic syndrome. And that ketohexakinase is basically taking that fructose and moving down the path to de novo lipogenesis. So it is necessary to maintain hydration. But the reason that the hydration works is because it's suppressing the effect of the, of the liver on how it's metabolizing the fructose. 
The better way is don't put the fructose in in the first place. Mm. So everything about the way this, you know, sports drinks are marketed is disingenuous, missing the point and categorically false. You do not need a sports drink, period. And the, the perfect example of that is the Kenyan or Ethiopian distance runners. Okay. Ever see any of them drinking a sports drink? Ever? Anywhere? No, but they run forever. And they run forever. The point, the point is they are keto adapted. They are keto adapted. And, you know, individual sports stars in, you know, the NBA and in uh, uh, Major League Baseball, et cetera, are in fact keto adapted. Steve Nash is one of the famous ones. He never touched sugar. Ever, ever. Steph Curry doesn't touch it. And the reason is because they are keto adapted. So they can run faster and longer and not have to replete their glycogen because they don't have any glycogen. They're not relying they, upon it. Because they don't have to rely on it. Now, what happens is that when a non elite athlete tries to keto adapt, they have to induce the enzymes that break down. Uh, fat into ketones. And that doesn't happen immediately. It takes about five days. So when a non-elite athlete tries to go keto, they their performance falters because they glycogen deplete and they can't generate the ketones quick enough to take their place, you know, to take their place as energy. And so there's about a five-day lag time between you know switching and you know getting back to peak performance sometimes a week and so people say oh i feel awful and i you know feel like i'm gonna throw up and i have to go back to sugar and sugar is clearly better for me and that's not true they just didn't give it enough of a chance if you're if your listeners want to do peak you know to get to peak performance and you know i'm, I'm for that i'm not I'm, you know why why wouldn't anybody want to not reach peak performance okay then what you have to do is you have to get off sugar and get your uh, lipolytic enzymes, uh, you know, ducks in a row and, you know, get keto adapted and, you know, move, move yourself forward and, you know, don't listen to the, uh, to the hype. MedBridge provides evidence-based courses, unlimited CEUs, home exercise programs featuring 6,000 plus exercises and more. Use promo code THEADVANTAGE, that's T-H-E-A-T-V-A-N-T-A-G-E, to get an annual MedBridge subscription. Well, I want to I touch upon, you said that many companies, especially ones that promote sports drinks, are disingenuous. And I think some may say, well, you know, I've read such and such study, let's use weight as an example. I've read such and such study that says that sugared beverages don't lead to weight gain. You show me a study of sugar beverages that doesn't lead to weight gain. And, I'll, I'll, and I will tell you, and I'll tell you that I know where they are. So let me, let me tell you the, this story. That's why I asked the question of you. Sorry to, to interrupt you. But no, no, me, no, no. I set you on the path that I wanted to. Okay. All right. All right. You, you were shill for me. Okay. Uh, <laughs> So uh, there are several meta-analyses done by my 
colleague slash nemesis, Dr. John Stephen Piper at St. Michael's Hospital, uh, University of Toronto. He does meta-analyses for a living. And what it says on the question of sugar and weight loss is that it is inconclusive. The data are inconclusive. 60 data points. Inconclusive. That's what it says. So, of course, inconclusive means go eat all the sugar you want, right? Because it's inconclusive. My colleague at UCSF, Dr. Dean Schillinger, took that meta-analysis with the same 60 data points, exactly the same analysis. And he added one extra variable, whether the study was sponsored by a food company or whether it was independently funded. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so what it turned out that the 60 data points, 34 of them were independent were, and 26 of them were funded by a food company of the 26 that were funded by a food company, all 26 said no effect of the 34 that were independently funded. 33 said sugar causes obesity and diabetes. Logic. Well, so it's obvious that the data is polluted. The, the data are polluted and the, the, and the pollution occurred from the food industry on purpose, so then they could go and say, see, it's inconclusive. So that's that's one aspect of the disingenuousness that you describe. Yes. I, I want to bring up another study, which I, I'm, I know you're aware of because I, I, you have cited it. But there was a study in L.A. where an independent research team tested sugary sweetened beverages off the shelf. Yep. And they found with the third-party analyzation that the store-bought sodas had about as high a fructose content of 65%, yeah. when typically fructose, at least on the label or what you would find on the company's website, would be a lower value, maybe at 55%. Right. So this is the work of Michael Gorin and uh, Emily Ventura at uh, Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. And then what they did was they went in into L.A. and they bought up uh, cans of soda in, you know, of different types and also out of the dispenser, you know, from like 7-Elevens, mm -hmm. you know, and Burger Kings. And they sent them for analysis. Now, high fructose corn syrup is what sweetens all of these drinks. But high fructose corn syrup comes in three, three concentrations a 42% concentration, a 55% concentration, and then finally, a 90% concentration. Now, sucrose, table sugar, is 50% fructose, right? It's half glucose, half fructose, right? Because they're, you know, two molecules bound together, right? So 42% High fructose corn syrup is going to be about as sweet as sugar because fructose is, um, is sweeter than sugar. And so it has a, a sweetness index of about 100 to match sucrose. 55% is way sweeter than sugar. So if you're using the 55% high fructose corn syrup, you've actually got a sweeter product than normal sugar. 
So that should be about as high a concentration of fructose as you would ever see in, you know, in, in, in commercial use. But what Michael Gorin and uh, Emily Ventura found was that there were drinks out there, especially drinks from soda dispensers, that were as high as 65% fructose because they were using the 90% fructose uh, concentration to make them. And the question is why? Sure. Addictive. Tastes good. Makes me, oh man, I'm not feeling good today. Let me go get my. Well, that makes even more liver fat. So should we trust what research that are funded by the food industry? Absolutely not. And I'm here to, 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 to say that categorically, okay, that you cannot trust anyone with a vested interest. I do not take money from the food industry very specifically. And the reason is so that I can maintain my independence and my integrity. Mm. And, you know, if people don't believe me, you know, then look at the literature. But when you read the literature, you don't, when you read the abstract, okay, you don't look at the results first. You don't look at the methods first. You don't look at the, you you look at the funding funding, first. Yeah. It's insanity. Another thing that I want you to touch upon, Dr. Lustig, you mentioned at the very, very beginning of our conversation in that people of color are disproportionately advertised to, yes. promoted sugary sweetened beverages, and there's studies that have shown that. Yep. One in particular, um, I forget the journal, but I, I read this a few years back. They looked at subway advertisements in New York City, you know, lots of subway lines. Mm-hmm. And they controlled for where the subway lines were traversing or ending, either into neighborhoods of color versus white neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And they found a huge discrepancy in the amount of sugary sweetened beverages advertisement in the neighborhoods of color than in white neighborhoods or more affluent neighborhoods. And why are we surprised? Well, we shouldn't be. We we are not surprised. I think <laughs> potentially listeners are going to be surprised by by some of these things. And well, the, you know, the, we saw the same thing with alcohol too. You know, I mean, this is not this is not a, a new phenomenon. Or cigarettes, or or right, or cigarettes. Thank you, yeah. absolutely, Chris. So this is not this is not a, a a new concept. You know, they know what they're doing, and it's very specific. And my job is to call it out and to you know make people aware, you know, on the other hand, you know, I, I I can't, you know, fix your house for you, you know, and as I've said, education alone has never solved any substance of abuse. So we can do all of the calling out, we can do all of the, you know, you know, stripping back the, uh, the veil and getting people to open their eyes, but ultimately people want their fix. Yeah. So, so with that, maybe let's talk a bit about after calling it out, because that's the low hanging fruit. We all can, we can do that. But so then we call it out and then what? So we're talking about behavior change. We're talking about a ton of things, right? I'm, my mind's just being spun around because I'm like, wow, (laughs) when we talk about these universities or whatever, you know, where we see some of these sports drinks being promoted and marketed, man, that this all comes back to money, comes back to the purse strings, right? Because as the athletic director, I could say, you know what? Sports medicine team, you make a great point. Why are we poisoning our athletes? Let's cut it. 
But then the president of the university or the chancellor or whomever might say, hold on, you know, oh my gosh. We, you're, you're absolutely right. And that is why the University of California system has actually gotten rid of all sugar beverages on all 10 campuses uh, for that reason. Okay, so there is a precedent. So this was a complicated thing because of the pouring rights contracts that had to be dealt with. But we are actually, you know, we did it at UCSF first. We uh, instituted the Healthy Beverage Initiative back in 2015. And we studied it in our employees and found that they actually lost visceral fat, you know, lost waist circumference and improved their insulin sensitivity just by getting the sugar beverages off campus. So over two, there was over 200 some employees, correct? Or 214 employees that we studied. So, I mean, all employees were exposed to it, but we studied 214 high sugar, uh, high soda consumers. So it can be done. And various hospitals around the country are now um, moving to have uh, uh, sugar beverages removed. Swedish hospital in Seattle had juice removed from the hospital because juice is no better. Um, you know, this concept that somehow juices has this health halo has to go. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. And, you know, juice is just as bad, if not worse than than uh, soda. Soda has one point seven grams of fructose per ounce. Juice has one point eight grams of fructose per ounce. So, you know, this notion that juice is healthy, you know, that's the citrus growers of America, you know, basically, you know, just buzzing Finding an anger. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So it can be done. And we at the University of California have you know, spearheaded this charge. And we would be very happy to work with other universities that want to make you know, that, uh, that same change you know, for the health of their students, because no one needs it. No one needs it. And there's so much harm associated. It's vestigial from human and all vertebrate life. There is no biochemical reaction in any vertebrate that requires fructose. I I, um, I want to touch upon another study that you were a part of, or at least probably have a lot of knowledge of at UCSF, which was you looked at a prospective diet modification model with, I think, Roughly 50 African American and Latino children that were obese or, or had metabolic syndrome, I think. That's my study. <laughs> oh, there you go. I've been doing a lot of reading in the past months and it's hard to keep them all straight in the brain. But I thought this was so salient because you basically took these individuals from a terrible diet to a slightly less than terrible diet. It was still a terrible diet. Okay, perfect. It was just a no added sugar diet. Yes. And the outcomes were basically that their markers of metabolism improved, meaning blood lipids improved. They also had some subjective findings that I think were very interesting. And then the comparison of visceral fat to liver fat improved. That was just from taking from, as you said, a, a terrible diet to slightly less terrible diet. Imagine the power still, of... Still terrible, just no it, sugar. It, yeah, exactly. So imagine the power of just real food. Absolutely. So what we did in this study is we took 43 children from our obesity clinic at UCSF, all Latino and African-American, all high sugar consumers, all with metabolic syndrome. So, you know, at least, you know, obesity plus at least one comorbidity. 
And what we did was we studied them on their home diet, figured out what they were eating on their home diet, studied them on their home diet. And then for the next nine days, we catered their meals. No added sugar. We took the percent of sugar for, from, as calories from their diet from 28% of calories down to 10% of calories. We gave them fruit. That's it. We matched everything else. We matched the protein content. We matched the uh, fat content. We matched the fiber content. We matched the total carbohydrate content. But within carbohydrate, we took the sugar out. And so we had to replace it with something that was equicaloric. We gave them extra starch. Mm -hmm. So we did a starch for sugar exchange is what we did. Isocaloric. And we gave them a scale. So every day they'd weigh themselves. And if they were losing weight, they ate more to keep their weight constant. All right. So 350 to 400 calories of sugar out of their diet, 350 to 400 calories of starch into their diet. Got it? Yep. And then we studied them again 10 days later. Every aspect of their metabolic health improved. Blood, their fasting blood glucose went down by five points. Their fasting blood pressure went down by five points. Their glucose area into the curve went down 8%. Their insulin area into the curve went down 25%. They had a lactate level at baseline. Now, this is really important for you as sports physiologists. If you have a lactate level, then one of three things is going on. Either your post-exercise, or you have a mitochondrial encephalomyopathy, or you have cancer, right? Yep. Those are your three options. Now, these kids had a lactate level. So that's telling us their mitochondria are not working right. With no physical because activity. And with no physical, this is resting. This at is at rest. High level, right. This is at rest. And they have a high level of lactate at rest, which means their mitochondria are not working. And the reason is because their mitochondria are poisoned. There you go. And how many of our athletes that we're serving at the youth and high school levels are having lactate levels before they even do anything? That's right. So many that we don't know because nobody right. measures it. Right. Nobody measuring. Measuring. But yeah. if you measure them, you find it. And that's the point. So these kids, their lactate level went down too. Okay, having nothing to do with exercise. And the reason is because now they're mitochondria work. And say the duration again. Uh, 10 days. That change in 10 days is so profound. With no change in calories and no change in weight. And finally, we, look, we measure fat depots. So subcutaneous fat, no change because they didn't lose weight. Visceral fat, belly fat, down 7%, and that's good. Liver fat down 22%. And it turns out that as the liver fat went down, their pancreas, their uh, manufacture of insulin, got better. In other words, we reversed the metabolic dysfunction by getting the fat out of the liver. And the way we got the fat out of the liver was by getting the fructose, which is the substrate that makes the fat out of the liver. Now, a lot of people may say, well, you know, I'm not obese, I don't have diabetes, I don't have metabolic syndrome, but what percentage of Americans are on this precipice of metabolic issues or are having metabolic issues that are just unmeasured? In 2019, a study came out that showed that 
of Americans have some form of metabolic dysfunction. Yeah. Seven out of eight. Well, that's a whole lot of people. But that's what I was going to say. People would say, I don't have, you know, I'm not diabetic. I'm not overweight. I don't have metabolic syndrome, but they don't know that last one to be true. Who's exactly who's who's tested to see if they, you know, so to your point, doc, like seven out of eight actually do have some sort of metabolic dysfunction. You know, I mean, might be me. (laughs) diabetes, Diabetes is the end stage. That's what happens at the end. Extreme. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, but the point is nobody should be in metabolic dysfunction. And if you were, if you actually were metabolically healthy, not only would you run faster, but you would think better. You'd do better in school. Absolutely. It would be, it would be such an important study to look at NFL, you know, down to youth football and then watch that curve of metabolic syndrome grow as you go from the opposite of level, you know, down. And that's what I want people to understand is the, the level of sport that you're at is going to lead to your health. But the majority of sports medicine providers are not taking care of professional athletes. They're taking care of youth athletes, high school athletes, lower level college athletes right. that are going to have a higher propensity for a poor diet and all of these chronic issues we've discussed. So, so I'm wondering, what are the ways, you know, you know, as athletic trainers, we should be measured. Maybe we start measuring people's metabolic functions. <laughs> You know, I don't know how we do that in a, in a way that is practical in a way that's ac- somewhat accurate. And maybe this is where doc could help us with this, but yep. you know, I'm, as I'm hearing all of these things, I'm like, okay, so man, this seems like something we can actually do about it is to help people know, actually you have some metabolic dysfunctions. Right. So I work with several companies. I'm an advisor to one in particular where we're actually measuring metabolic health on the fly using continuous glucose monitoring. And ultimately we will start doing, you know, other uh, channels as well, not just glucose, but, you know, continuous um, uh, insulin monitoring, continuous triglyceride monitoring, continuous lactate monitoring. Um, Right now, glucose is available. Um, The others are, you know, in in process. And the goal is to get people to know what food does to them so that they can basically make good choices for themselves. Because right now your body's a black box. You don't know what's happening inside it. Personalized nutrition. Well, it's a, it's a start. It's the beginning of personalized nutrition. At Vantage is the premier provider for non-traditional work, advocacy, and resources while pushing the boundaries of athletic training. Follow them on social media at the Advantage and join their email list for an even deeper dive into all things non-traditional and access to more boundary pushing content. Ooh, I'm thinking about school districts now because I'm like, okay, what well, would <laughs> there's there's the big food companies there? Are they influenced by you know they influence the school districts and all that other stuff that would make some of these road that might potentially be roadblocks? Well, so um, I am the chief science officer of a nonprofit here in the Bay Area called Eat Real. Yes. And our job is to get real food into school districts around the country. Beautiful. Because basically, you know, uh, schools are the largest fast food franchise in the world. Jeez. And so we have to fix that. 
uh, and this is why kids' grades are going down, is because the food sucks. Now, the question is, why does the food suck? And the answer there is 1971. Congress passed a law called Resolution 242, which basically said that school cafeterias basically had to fend for themselves. They had to make book. They had to basically, you know, balance their own budgets. And they, you know, they they could not be the loss leader for the school. They had to basically, you know, be self-contained. And what this meant was that all of these um, cafeterias, you know, paying these lunch ladies, you know, with the, you know, with the hairnets and everything, remember them? Or maybe you don't because you're not old enough. But at least from the movies. <laughs> the movies. Okay. They all got fired. And, you know, uh, and they had to figure out how they were going to, you know, feed children in school, especially when so many kids were on the national school lunch program. And so here comes Cisco and here comes McDonald's and, oh, we'll solve that for you. And, you know, and not only can we solve that for you, but, you know, you won't need your food preparation facilities. You can take the kitchens and turn them into classrooms. Wow. And so now no school has food preparation facilities, which was their plan all along, because now they're hostile. They want to be the people, right? They want to be. So the question is now, you know, you can't build a kitchen back on to these schools. You know, that would be ridiculously expensive. What can you do? Well, so we have piloted and have have, uh, demonstrated efficacy in a new model where basically a enterprising uh, school district food service director will purchase a dilapidated factory or, you know, uh, food preparation facility in that, in their district and will become the centralized food preparation facility for the entire district. Mm. We've done this at the Mount Diablo unified school district. Mm. And because they're making 27,000 meals a day, Okay, they have economies of scale in terms of discounting on on um, produce and uh, and uh, grains and uh, and meat. So it actually ends up being cheaper, and they all get prepared in the one central facility. It's all done, you know, uh, in house. All right, so you can control what's in it instead of you know ultra processed food. You're getting real food, yep. and then it gets farmed out to each of the schools. So we've gotten rid of 270,000 pounds of sugar from one district in one year. 10 pounds of sugar per kid, 27,000 kids. That's amazing. All right. So this can be done and we can scale that up. And we actually have a set of materials, you know, a playbook for how any individual school district could do this and we can work with them. So all you have to go do is go to eatreal.org and, you know, tell us you're, you're interested. Yep. This is it. That's great. So for our athletic trainers out there listening and any other sports medicine professionals involved, there's, there's a start right in the right direction, because this is a, this is an overwhelming problem, which we've, I think we've done a great job establishing, you know, it's the tip of the iceberg. And so that leads you to thinking, oh, well, what's the, what's the point? What's the use, right? Just let people continue to do whatever they're doing because I can't make a change. But here's here's then you won't the right then you won't have health care by the year 2029. Right. <laughs> We're headed towards that. That's the outcome. One salient point you made, Chris, is that an athletic trainer sometimes is the only healthcare provider having any sort of touch with many of these youth. I mean, they're not seeing a primary care physician. Mm-hmm. Like that's the only healthcare provider. And so having a solution of 
look at Eat Reels program, get that program into your school is such a big public health benefit for those children to just have improved quality of their food. And we've talked about today how if you just improve the quality a little bit, a major effect it can have in a short duration of time on their health. Yeah. And these athletic trainers are what I'm realizing more and more. I think I've unconsciously, we've unconsciously known this, but it's important to articulate this very clearly. Not only are athletic trainers in these strategic positions to sometimes, oftentimes in these areas that we're talking about, the only healthcare provider, but they are also the only legitimate healthcare educator. So Mm -hmm. if we talk about Obviously, it's one thing to talk to the, to the athletes and to provide services and care and education to the athletes and, and the students, but it's a different thing to also communicate and educate coaches, administrators, school districts, and, and beyond, because those folks, they don't know either. So when I think about organizations like Eat Real, um, for you athletic trainers out there, not only are you looking into this to see how you can affect change for your influence of athletes, but it's likely going to be you, you, the strategy probably needs to be, you need to start thinking of of ways to affect change with your administration. And these are the ways that I think us at, at last, um, it sounds like what eat real would, would want to come alongside of you and help you to advocate for these things, because maybe we've got a different perspective and a different voice, more credibility, et cetera. Doc, what do you say? We'd be delighted. Absolutely. We're all working in the same direction. And, you know, if you're working, you know, to try to fix, you know, high school athletics, we are there with you. You know, the question is, what do high school athletes need to drink? Water. 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 (laughs) It's such a simple solution. Well, harder than it looks. Right. It is. It is a simple, it's a simple solution, but it's very hard to do. Like you said. Yeah. Because of all of these other extenuating factors, been discussing so far. And, and that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? Behavior change and marketing and all of these things. But Dr. Lustig has the juice and I'm not talking about fruit juice. <laughs> <laughs> Very kind of you to say. Yeah. Well, um, you know, if, if I can be of any service to you and your listeners, you know, going forward, I'm happy to do so. You know, the, the, the point is the science is there. Yeah. But unfortunately, so is the politics. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we just want to thank you for your time today, Dr. Lustig. I, I do want people, an, another action item that our listeners could do is read your books, uh, Chiefly Metabolical and The Hacking of the American Mind. I recently read both over the last couple of months, and uh, I just have to say, now, maybe I'd be, I might be biased because these are topics that I'm really interested in, but your writing is profound. It is eye-opening. It's very data-driven and supported by evidence. I appreciate that. And um, so I, I wish more people would read it, really, is what I'm saying. I wish doctors would read it. You know, the bottom line is I actually, you know, I mean, I, I wrote it for the general public because I had to, but I actually wrote it for doctors because doctors don't get any nutrition in medical school. And, you know... They, the only thing they know uh, about disease is called a prescription pad. They don't know anything else. And I know because I'm one of them. Yeah, and I know go. what the story is, and we, we've got to fix that. That's the, that's the paradigm shift that has to occur. Love it. Yeah, so much. Yeah, Doc, I, I appreciate your time. We appreciate your time. 
the wheels are spinning for for us. I know for sure, spinning for me. And you know, so we're gonna use some. Well, I think some good, even you know, marketing. Right, marketing is an amoral thing, right? And and so. Well, no, no, I'm not gonna. I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't go that far. What's the difference between marketing and propaganda? Oh, it's a thin line. Hmm. I would say marketing is is simply telling people about your brand or your product or your services, as opposed to propaganda. Well, I guess at the at the root, you know, what I would have to start wordsmithing, right? Marketing marketing is using information to espouse your point of view. There you go. Yep. Okay. Right. Propaganda. So right is, propaganda is using disinformation to espouse your point of view. Uh, perfect. Right. When you tell the when you tell the truth about your products, you're marketing. Yep. When you tell a lie about your products, it's propaganda. That's propaganda. Got it. So I, so I would, so I don't, so when I said, I think marketing is amoral, that's what I mean. Like it's not good or bad in and of itself inherently, right? You can, you can take it to do good or you can take it to do harm. Right. And, and so I, you know, I guess the point I was trying to make is there are so many things from our conversation that I think we can use to, to, pr- to provide marketing to our demographics as well to get this word out about, you know, different things. Because even, you know, for instance, like campaigns or different things. One thing that I'm thinking about right off the top of my head is, you know, how the athletic trainer is, a, is, is, is peddling toxins, Indeed. you know. That's you know, how, how this do, conversation came about. Right, right. So how do and how, what, what does that do to the person who thinks who doesn't they're not thinking that. So if we're like, hey, stop peddling these toxins and they're like, well, what do you mean? You know, and it, it's just those are the things that can jar us to say, well, OK, now that we have your attention, you know, let's have a, a more informed conversation. We actually don't we're not trying to bring harm to you or, you know, discredit your character. But listen, we're going to give you some information. And then once you have the information, now you've got to make some decisions about what you're going to do with it. Well, that's my job. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Mission accomplished. The Sister Academy of Advantage, their academy arm, is who brings you great educational content like this podcast. For more resources on professional development, starting a business, or advocacy, head to AdvantageAcademy.com. Yeah, Adam, you want to you want to tell folks again how they can stay in touch with Dr. Lustig or, or you know, keep in, keep follow his work. And yeah, he, he has a website that's titled by his name that has a ton of information. So, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so robertlustig.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on wherever. Uh, LinkedIn. Metabolical is the book that I wrote basically, you know, to debunk our last 70 years of nutrition in America. Hacking of the American Mind talks about addiction and depression and the role of food in mental health. And uh, Fat Chance was the original book I wrote back in 2013, which is still selling amazingly. And I'm very happy about that. And that's the book that basically says a calorie is not a calorie. And where those calories come from determines where they go. And if you don't understand that, then you are doomed you know, to the uh, vicissitudes of the food industry for the rest of your life. We're eight years strong and people still believe that a calorie is a calorie. I know. Well, less people than before. Yes. Thanks, Dr. Lustig. 